Well, good morning and welcome to lesson nine in our Bible study series on Romans. My name is Darren Knapp and I'm so excited to lead our study today because it just so happens that the passage we're studying is my absolute favorite in the entire Bible. And I'll tell you why in just a minute, but first let me tell you just a little bit about my family. First, I've got an amazing wife, Alicia, and besides being beautiful, smart, wise, kind, I could go on, um, but the Lord used her in a powerful way to reach me before I became a Christian. And one of the reasons I believe our marriage has held strong for 18 years now is that I'm positive, 100% positive that God chose her for me and I know I couldn't have selected a better wife. Um, you know, I'm also blessed we've got four children ages 8 through 16. Uh, Karina's our oldest, she's 16 years old and she's wise beyond her years. Uh, she's amazing in art and definitely something she gets from her mom. I can barely draw a smiley face. Uh, Noelle is our 15-year-old daughter. She's really smart. And at this point, I think she may be on her way to becoming a lawyer because she loves to debate, insert the word argue there. Um, but I love her feisty spirit and, and she's a blessing as well. Marshall's my 12-year-old boy and we've got that father-son bond. You know, we like sports. And he especially loves football. And I enjoy coaching the flag football team he's on. And last but not least, we've got our eight-year-old daughter, Delta Jane. And she's such a fun-loving kid. And she's getting really good at gymnastics. So, you know, just a quick intro to the family. Uh, we've been members and regular attendees at First Baptist Keller since 2016. And I'm one of two Sunday school teachers for our adult marrieds class. Uh, we call the group Cross Training, and we're led by our wonderful directors, Scott and Buffy Pleasance. Okay, so let's dig into Romans. And let me explain uh, why it is that I love our passage today. Now, as a quick recap on what we've learned so far, you know, first keep in mind that the author is the Apostle Paul. He's responsible for writing as many as 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And he's about as on fire for God as, as anyone can be. Um, but keep in mind that Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. In a letter he wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.15, if you want to look it up, he, he is on fire, but he points out that he knows he's a sinner. So why does he think of himself this way? Uh, for one, it's because he used to jail and even execute Christians. You know, before he was known as the Apostle Paul, he was also known as Saul of Tarsus. He was one of the most rabid persecutors of the early Christian movement. Now remember in Acts 7, when the Apostle Stephen was being stoned to death, a young Pharisee by the name of Saul stood by and witnessed uh, and the witnesses laid their coats at his feet. And keep in mind, you know, the reason that they're putting their coat at the feet of, of uh, Saul is because they've got to get fully into the exertion and the exercise of stoning a man to death. And you can't really do that well with an outer garment on. So they would lay their outer garments at the feet of, of this Pharisee, Saul. Now, he didn't take part in the execution, it doesn't seem, if, if you read the, the um, text. But the posture indicates that he had authority over the proceedings. Now, we also know that 
just two chapters later in Acts 9, Saul is on his way to Damascus in Syria for the purpose of persecuting the Christian church. So to be clear, Saul was a Christ hater. He loved the Torah. He loved all the Jewish laws. He even loved God. But he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's why he persecuted the Christians. In Saul's mind, this was the highest form of blasphemy. To ascribe Godhood to someone other than God was breaking the first four commandments. And and in his mind, he wasn't convinced. He didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. Now, flash forward to Romans. And now we've got a man who's writing a letter to the church, the Christian church in Rome. And, And let's be clear, he absolutely believes now that Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, that conversion happened on the road to Damascus when he personally encountered the risen Jesus. Now, the letter to the Romans covers a lot of ground, but at its core, it's about the gospel. It's about the good news that Jesus covers our sin and restores us to a right relationship with God the Father. Chapter 1 is an introduction that jumps right into the core problem. God's wrath is deserved. We deserve God's wrath. By simply looking at the world around us, We can see evidence of God. We can see evidence of his power and of his presence. In fact, Paul tells us that it's self-evident that God is. You know, when, when you think back to Moses, when he first met God, God told him his name was I Am. And if you just look around you and you look at nature and you look at the sky, you just get this awe inspiring sense of the power and the majesty of God. But now as Paul continues in chapter one, he says that instead of responding positively positively to this obvious presence of God, we profess to be wise and we dismissed him. Now, I personally can relate to this because before I became a Christian in 2001, I considered myself an atheist. I didn't believe in God. I'd sometimes look at the world around me and think, is it really possible that this is all a cosmic accident? You know, I was an atheist, but if I was being honest with myself, I'd look around and I'd look at the stars and look at the sky and look at the trees and the birds and, and I, I had doubts. But professing to be wise, as Paul states, Uh, I just continued to be a fool, and I dismissed God in favor of, back then, the evolution theory. And At the end of this chapter, uh, in verse 28, Paul says that God gave us, and I put in parentheses me, over to a depraved mind. And and this is something, again, that I can relate to. You know, when I didn't have God, I had an attitude of every man for himself— It's all about me. It's all about what I can take. It's all about what I can gain. And the funny thing is, is that I was aware of my own sin. It was actually making me miserable. But it never registered with me that my lack of belief in God was at the core of the problem. Now, throughout the letter, Paul spent some time looking at the law and its value. And as we get to chapter 3, 
Think about this. The Jews didn't have just the Ten Commandments. They had 613 laws that they referred to as the mitzvot. That's M-I-T-Z-V-O-T, mitzvot. 613 laws, not just the Ten Commandments, but 613. And as a Jew and as a Pharisee, Saul was one of the best at keeping these 613 laws. But in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul draws out from the Old Testament to say that there is none righteous, not even one. This includes him and every person on earth. So even the Pharisee, Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, that tries with all his might to be perfect, it's just not going to happen. Now, just a couple of verses later in verse 23, in chapter 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to be clear, nobody has earned the glory of God. We all fall short of that mark on our own power. Now, moving along into chapter 4, Paul points out that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. So before the law, Abraham was right with God. Why? Because he believed God. Now keep in mind, Abraham existed about 430 years before Moses, long before the Ten Commandments, but he was already right with God. And it wasn't because of his own power and his effort to try to be good. Matter of fact, there's, there's plenty of, of instances where you can see that, that he was flawed, but he was counted as righteous because he believed God, because of his faith. Now in chapter 5, Paul reminds us that in verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we could spend hours talking about just this part of it, but to keep it short, just remember that in the Jewish law, they atone for their sins by sacrifice, sacrificing a spotless lamb. Now, if we jump ahead to chapter 6, we see Paul remind us of a recurring theme in the Bible. In Romans 6, 23, we see, For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. And that's to say that the effect of sin is that it kills us, both literally and figuratively. Now, if you go back to the Garden of Eden and you look at Adam and Eve, they had eternal life and constant fellowship with God. And they had the eternal life through the access to the tree of life. Now, when they sinned, God barred their access to the tree and to the garden. And, and when he put them out, he limited their lifespan. And sin broke that perfect relationship with God. Now, going back to Moses in the 613 mitzvot, God allowed the Jews to make themselves right with him if they would confess their sins and sacrifice a lamb. So the lamb's shed blood was given as a replacement for the sinner's blood. So instead of the sinner dying, the lamb died. And as we get to chapter 7, Paul shows us this struggle between trying to follow the law and knowing that it's a good thing 
and yet struggling with that sin on the inside. So on one side, the law helps us understand our sin and we don't want to be sinners. But on the other side, our our nature, our very nature is sinful. So what do we do? I love this in, in Romans 7 and verses 19 through 25. This is how Paul says it. It says, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And he closes with, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see this back and forth struggle, this inner struggle between wanting to be good, wanting to be more like God, but our own inner sin nature is in constant rebellion against that. And he closes by letting us know that Jesus is the answer. So the question I want to tackle today in our lesson as we move into the chapter 10 is how? How do you activate that Jesus power? How do I get set free from the power of sin? So let's turn now to Romans chapter 10 and we'll begin with our lesson and in reading verse 5. Romans chapter 10 verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Let me read that again. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. I always like to stop and think about what I've read and try to digest it before I go any further. And for this lesson, I'm going to ask you to do this a few times. I'll ask you to pause the lesson and kind of think about what it is that you just read. I'm also going to give you a couple of scripture references that you can go read while you've paused it uh, to help you think about this, this particular scripture. So the ones that I want you to go look up and read are Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Again, that's Deuteronomy 6. 1 and 2. I also want you to look in Deuteronomy in chapter 18, verse 5, and then turn to Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 11. So I'm going to read those real quickly again. Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2, Deuteronomy 18, verse 5, and Ezekiel 20, verse 11. So what I'd like you to do is to go read those and just think about, or if you're in a group, talk about what you've read 
and discuss how important it would be for the Jewish people to keep the commandments in the mitzvot. And then think about how difficult would that be for us today to keep those 613 laws. Again, I'd just like you to think about it, discuss it. How important would it be to follow the law and how difficult would that be? Okay, so go ahead and pause the recording and talk it over. Okay, I hope you pause the recording and that you spend a little time thinking it over. You know, for me, uh, I'll share that even before I became a Christian, I was aware of my sin. You know, I did lots of stuff that I knew wasn't right, and I sincerely wanted to be a better person. I, I think I even knew the difference between right and wrong. I mean, let's face it, you know, we've all grown up with the Ten Commandments, even if you weren't raised in a Christian home, you probably know all about the Ten Commandments. So I knew the difference between right and wrong. And sometimes I'd even go for long periods of time being a pretty good guy. But eventually, I'd always end up back in the same mess. And if I'm being honest, there's still stuff, of course, that I mess up on today. But it's comforting for me as I read Romans to see that Paul struggled as well. You know, but for the non-Christian, as I was back then... I didn't see a way out of it. You know, it was extremely frustrating. I would try really hard to be a better person and I would muck it up and, and I'd just be right back at square one and, and hurt people in the process. And, you know, it's just, again, it was just very difficult, very frustrating. And I assume that most of you listening to this are probably professed Christians. And, and I think the lesson here for all of us is to understand the heart of a non-believer. You know, if, if they're visibly struggling with sin, maybe you know somebody who's just got outward sin and they're struggling with that. Uh, but, you know, even on the other side, even if they look like they've got their life pretty well buttoned up, chances are they really don't. And what we've learned already today is that everyone struggles. Everyone wants to know how to fix it. And just... Following the law is a tall, tall order. So let's keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 6 and 7. Again, here we are in Romans 10, verse 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. And we'll read that again. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So here Paul puts a magnifier on the effort required to follow the law. What does it take to get to heaven? How do you ascend to heaven? How good do you have to be to be as good as God? I think this is a place that most non-believers get stuck. You know, they actually believe that they're good. You know, try it. Next time that you're talking to a non-believer, ask them if they're a good person. Nine times out of ten, what they'll do is they'll compare themselves to people they know. You know, hey, 
Uh, compared to Johnny, I'm a saint. It's a game of relativism. But the truth is this. Compared to lots of people in the world, you are kind of good. You know, there's a lot of bad people in the world. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. And chances are that even if you're average, you're better than half of the people. But Paul points out here that you've got a bad standard. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, he said, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus brings a standard to a whole new level. And in the same chapter, uh, back in Matthew, Jesus also says some other things. He says, you know, if you say to someone, you fool, he says, you're guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's his quote, not mine. So the key here, if you're sharing your faith with someone, is just to be sure that they understand that the unit of measure is not comparing yourself to your neighbor, Have them compare themselves to Jesus. Have them compare themselves to God. How good do you have to be to be as good as God? Okay, now we're finally getting to my absolute favorite verse in the Bible. So let's read the next two in Romans 10, verses 8 and 9. And here's what it says. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And here's the part I love. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's powerful. Let me read that again. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. This is the word that Paul's been preaching. And here it comes. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it only took Paul 10 chapters to get to it. But finally, here we are. This is the how part. How do we get saved, Paul? It says, but what does it say? And I love that. It's just like he's saying, listen, it's right here. Don't miss it. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. It's right there for the non-believer. You know, I remember when I started going to church, I went nine months every Sunday before I got to this point where, where I was right at this point where, where the word is near, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. I was going to church and it had been nine, month and, nine months and today, even when I, when I think about that, I get goosebumps. It was January of 2001. I'd been dating Alicia for a few months and she found out I wasn't a Christian and she dumped me. So, you know, the, the crazy part is we had already exchanged the I love yous, right? You know, I love you. Um, but when she found out I wasn't a Christian, she dumped me. She told me that we had no future. She couldn't marry a non-Christian. 
This blew my mind. Now, I already loved her. And so out of desperation, I told her, hey, you know what? I'll go to church with you. Now, she knows this now, but my original intent to go to church wasn't to become a Christian. Remember, I was an atheist at this time. I thought that if we went to church, I could point out all the dumb stuff that I believed about Christianity. I could point it all out and then I could unconvert her. You know, just think of the insidiousness of that. But that was that was my mindset. I wanted to prove to her that the Christians were mindless mullets and that I was super smart and that she could listen to me instead of them. Now, here I am leading a Bible study lesson, so we know who won that battle. Um, makes me smile to this day just to think about the the audacity of of me wanting to unconvert somebody. But you know, I just I love that, and and I do. I feel that and I still remember that day. Now the point though is that I remember this feeling. You know, we'd been going to church for nine months and the word was near me. It was creeping into my heart. The words that our pastor was preaching, the words of faith. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. Our pastor was preaching on why we believe what we believe. He was answering questions like, Was Jesus a real person in history? Was he really the son of God? Were his miracles real? You know, it was a five-week series. And by the fifth week, you know, we kept moving closer every week. We kept moving up and moving up, getting closer to the front row. And so on week five, we were on the second row. And of course, if you're a Baptist, you know that that first row is kind of reserved for the, uh, the invitation. So we were as close to the front as we could possibly get. And I was absolutely captivated by the message. You know, over that period of time, I'd come to the point where I actually believed that Jesus really is a historical figure. You know, all you got to do is go out and and look for the evidence. Uh, There's plenty of evidence to prove that he is a real historical figure. You know, he had also convinced me that the miracles were real. I was even starting to believe that Jesus was the son of the living God. Just how far I had come over those months. And at the end of the service, I remember this, I started looking around and I saw the people around me and I thought to myself, these people aren't mullets. They're not dumb. They're some of the smartest, kindest, and most caring people I've ever met in my life. And as the pastor continued and we got closer to the invitation, it hit me. I'm the mullet. I'm the fool. And then the words came out of my mouth. They really, the only words that I could even mutter because I started to cry. I, I just started to bawl like a little baby. And, and I, I just said, I believe. That's the only thing I could get out of my mouth is I was just so overwhelmed with the gravity of of what had just happened in my mind. I went from being an atheist to all of a sudden, I believed that Jesus was the son of God and that he gave his life to save me. Now, during the invitation, you know, I I got up and... uh, I took one step forward. I was there with Alicia and, you know, we both took a step forward to meet the pastor. 
And he, and he asked me, he said, you know, why are you here, son? And I literally was bawling so much, I could barely get it out of my mouth. And I, all I could say was, I believe. And that's why this verse is so powerful to me. It's so simple to be saved. It happened in an instant. It took nine months, but the, the conversion, the moment those words could come out of my mouth, took an instant. And there it is. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you're saved. Confess him as Lord. He's now the boss. He makes the decisions. And what a difference that's made for me to be able to put all of my decisions into his control. And then believe in your heart that Jesus is the risen son of God and you're saved. And that faith statement is what justifies you in front of a holy God. Now, before we move on to the next section, I'd like to again pause the recording and, and just have another discussion, you know, either with yourself, just think about it, or whoever you're with right now, and, and just ask yourself a couple of things. You know, is there someone in particular that you know that you started thinking about as I was sharing my story? You know, maybe somebody popped into your mind. Or while you paused the recording, maybe somebody, God will place somebody on your heart. And, and is it possible that God's laying that person on your heart specifically for you to pray for them or share the gospel with them. So go ahead and pause the recording, give it some thought, and I'll meet you back in just a few. Okay, welcome back and let's wrap this up. So we're gonna wrap up the lesson by finishing out the text, um, we're going to go through verses 10 through 15. So again, we're in Romans 10. Now we're looking at verses 10 through 15. And let me read it for you. Verse 10. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. So as we close out, I'd just like, again, to pause the recording and just think about this. Go back and reread it and talk about these verses. How can someone call on Jesus unless they've heard about him. Who is going to deliver the good news? Do you think this job only belongs to our pastors? Think about that last one a bit. You know, I, 
first time I shared the gospel with somebody, I was absolutely petrified. You know, I didn't grow up in church, really didn't know the Bible. And, um, you know, talk to somebody about your faith when you haven't at that point even read the whole Bible. That's pretty petrifying. But really, do you think that the job of sharing the gospel only belongs to our pastors? So go ahead and pause the recording. Think about or discuss the questions with your group. And we'll see you back in just a minute. Okay, welcome back. Let me let me just offer up some closing thoughts. First, uh, I'm really thankful. Uh, you just you can't understand how thankful I am to be a Christian today. You know, God changed my life completely. I'm definitely a better husband than than that guy was going to be. I'm definitely a better better father to my children, uh, a better son to my parents. You know, brother to my sister. And, uh, and a friend of my friends. You know, it's not perfect, but I, but I frequently find myself just shaking my head in amazement on how radically different my life is today than where it was headed before. And listen, I'm no perfect dad, but I know my kids are super lucky to not have that other guy as their dad. And I'm extremely thankful today for the people who prayed for me for 33 years before I came to faith. My grandmother, Weena, uh, was, was really hurt, you know, as she saw me grow up. My parents didn't take me to church, and, and I know that, that hurt her. But every time we'd go to visit her, she'd have us over to church. You know, we'd, we'd go to church and have a nice Sunday lunch afterward. And every chance she got, she kept telling me this, Son, Jesus loves you. You know, it wasn't a very complicated message. But it was the good news. You know, she wasn't very articulate. She didn't have a apologetic session with me and try to talk me out of being an atheist. She just told me, son, Jesus loves you. And I can't even count the number of times that she told me to the point where long after those, those words still ring in my ears. And I'm so thankful that for all of those years she prayed for me. She would tell me, I'm praying for you. So, you know, I, I just encourage you. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be, um, you know, well-versed in the Bible to share the testimony that God has changed your life and that Jesus loves somebody, right? And that that's, I think, the application of this story. And Paul's mission is he went around and put himself in peril was to make sure that everybody he met knew that Jesus loves them and that there's an opportunity to get out of this crazy cycle of knowing that you want to be better, but just not being able to do it because you've got this sin nature inside of you and that the answer is right there. It's at the tip of your tongue. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, I pray that this passage of scripture has encouraged you today. It's been a blessing for me to share the lesson and my story with you, and I hope that you've got an opportunity soon to pray for someone to experience the same 
and to share that simple gospel message that Jesus loves you. What a powerful message. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift to be able to come to it and and be renewed and refreshed and encouraged. And Lord, we thank you for the good news that your son Jesus loves us and cares for us and is just waiting for us to claim him and to just confess that he's our Lord. We thank you for that power, Lord, and that uh, free gift of salvation that you offer. And we praise you in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.